How about now? Good morning, my name is Ben. I serve as one of the pastors here at Common Ground. And I want to start by saying that this is a judgment-free zone. So when I ask the next question, don't be looking around pointing fingers. Okay, Zach? All right, so here it is. Which part of the Bible do you find the most boring to read? Ooh, remember, no judgment. Raise your hand if it's the roll call from each tribe in the first part of Numbers. Anybody? Wow, okay. I picked a winner. All right. Uh, raise your hand if it is uh, the cleanliness, cleanliness, cleanliness laws in Leviticus. Anybody? Any takers? Less than in Numbers. Wow, that's surprising. Uh, and last one, raise your hand if it's the genealogies. Man, shame on all of you. Just kidding. If you raised your hand for the roll call or the laws, all I can say is hang in there. But if you're like me and would have raised your hand for the genealogies, check this out. Derek mentioned a couple weeks ago that the gospel, which means good news, the gospel doesn't start in Matthew. It actually starts in Genesis. See, in Genesis 5, we get a genealogy of man, starting with the very first man, Adam. Then the record continues with his third son because of some stuff that happened with uh, his older siblings in chapter 4, you can read about. And then it continues all the way to Noah. While the begats can be a little bit dry or maybe on the dull side, even within this, God's word comes to life. You see, the first 10 names in the genealogy contains a message when you know what these names mean in Hebrew. Those first, ter- those first 10 names are Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel. Well, that's kind of fun to say. Mahalalel. Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. When you string those names together in their Hebrew meaning, you get the following message. Man appointed mortal sorrow, but blessed God shall come down teaching His death shall bring the despairing rest. Ten generations, about 1,600 years from Adam to Noah, and collectively their names precisely present the gospel. Go home and calculate the odds of that happening by accident. When we're done, not right now. (coughs) Clues to God's redemption plan and promise like this are liberally sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. In this Advent series, we're taking a look at another clue regarding God's promised Messiah, how this promised one will be known, what he's like, what he'll be called. Our text for this series will be up on the screen, and it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we examine Old Testament prophetic literature, 
we need to keep in mind this genre is, uh, it often shifts from a present physical reality from when it was first written, which means context is really important, to a future spiritual reality that might also be physical and back and forth and sometimes together at the same time. Clear as mud? Excellent. The book of Isaiah is all about God's judgment on Israel's hardened hearts and wicked ways, as well as the hope of the promised Messiah, the seed from the kingly line of David that will remain after Israel gets chopped down and sent into exile. And that seed will one day rule all nations. All of God's word is a rich treasure trove you should seek to understand, but be honest, there will be parts of it that will need more study to comprehend than others. And prophetic literature is certainly one of those genres. Derek gave us a snapshot of this historical context uh, surrounding the book of Isaiah, how Israel had split into two nations uh, about 200 years earlier. And the northern kingdom uh, was ruled by almost exclusively wicked men. The southern kingdom had a mix of both. At the time of this prophecy in Isaiah, the northern kingdom had already been decimated by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were coming to Jerusalem. The wicked king of Jerusalem, his name was Ahaz, cried out to God for deliverance. And Isaiah gives him the prophecy of the virgin birth in chapter 7, as well as this prophecy in chapter 9 to offer hope. Last week, Derek did an amazing job of explaining what wonderful counselor means, how the word wonderful in the Bible is exclusively used to describe God or something God has done. And it includes the idea of amazing, otherworldly, and even hard to comprehend or understand or explain. Paired with the reality that Jesus is the wisdom of God, and we get the phrase, wonderful counselor. Our God is a wise God who always knows what is best, and he gave us his word to guide us in the spirit to make the way clear. The question you hopefully left with last week is, will you build your life on the foundation of God's word with Jesus Christ as the, uh, the wonderful counselor as your cornerstone, or will you build on the sand like the foolish builder in Matthew chapter 7 that Derek preached about? Now, it's important to recognize this passage in Isaiah is describing attributes and characteristics of the Messiah. So we're not necessarily splitting them into individual names, but rather aspects of who Jesus is, how he shall be known. And these descriptions all fit together beautifully, as we will see later on. This morning, we are taking a look at the description, Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So, let's start with Mighty God. To help us understand the meaning and the magnitude of this attribute, we need to take a look at the beginning of verse 6 to see a really stark contrast. Derek hinted at it a little bit last week, but let's take a look at it this morning. Verse 6 starts with, For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. Over 700 years before the first Christmas, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born, meaning human, and he would be the son of God, meaning divine. This child's son is then immediately described as having authority, wisdom, power, and goodness. I don't know about you, but when I think of children, I don't immediately think of them as good wise, or strong. 
In fact, it's usually the complete opposite since human offspring are one of the weakest and neediest babies to be brought into this world. I have a typo here. I almost said a newborn elf. <laughs> this Christmas series almost got really weird. A newborn elk will stand and take its first steps within about 30 minutes. A human, a year is about average. It takes about a year for us to use our tiny hands to face smash food into our mouths, still longer to stop being barbarians and actually use a spoon. Another year, to, a year or two of face smashing before we can protect ourselves from the elements by dressing. Still longer to bathe without direct supervision. By seven or eight, hopefully, you're teaching your children to prepare basic foods for themselves, like sandwiches or scrambled eggs. Yet I've known high schoolers who couldn't do even this. No judgment, remember? <laughs> Approximately 18 years after birth, we send our children out as semi-adults to semi-adult their way in this world, but continue to act as their safety nets for several years to come, in most cases, in some cases. Now, don't get me wrong. I love children. They are gifts from God. And we need godly parents to shepherd them well. Because children come into this world by God's design as needy, dependent, weak, and ignorant. Yet Isaiah says this child will be called mighty. Okay, so maybe the promise is that he will grow up and be a mighty warrior. This is certainly what the Jews were hoping for, an earthly ruler who would free them from whoever was currently oppressing them be they Assyrian, Egyptian, Babylonian, or in Jesus' time, the Romans. That makes sense since the definition of mighty is possessing great and impressive power or strength, especially on the account of size. Synonyms include extremely fearsome, exceedingly ferocious, immensely robust, and my personal favorite, vastly manful. We'll get more into that later. And the term mighty God in Hebrew actually means hero God. Do you know that? It's pretty cool. This imposing figure was what the first century Jews were hoping and waiting for. So many, if not most, rejected the notion that Jesus could be this mighty figure. Why? Well, because this child who would be called mighty had anything but a mighty start in this world. Poor parents from a backwater village in a scorned corner of the world. Can anything good come from Galilee, one Pharisee asked when they found out where Jesus was from. He was born in a barn rather than a castle. His family were refugees in another country when he was still small because his life was in danger. His father was a laborer and he followed in his father's footsteps. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Okay, perhaps you're thinking he's mighty because he's divine. But Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus emptied himself, meaning he didn't stop being the son of God, but rather, rather set aside those rights and privileges as God in order to take on flesh. So what does this mighty mean? 
Does anyone remember those, those uh, Lord's Gym or God's Gym t-shirts that were strangely popular back in the 90s? Anybody remember those? A couple honest people here. Awesome. For those of you who were spared this abomination, <laughs> these shirts featured an image of Jesus in a push-up position with a crown of thorns on his head. The cross was on his back, and on the cross it said, the sins of the world, and, uh, and something like that. And on, on the bottom of the shirt it said, bench press this, even though he was doing a push-up. Very strange. <laughs> and Jesus was super jacked, just absolutely ripped with muscles. Man, I really wanted one of those shirts when I was a kid. Vastly manful Jesus, right? Heck yeah. But if that's our idea of what it means for this promised child to be mighty, I think we've missed the point. Instead of trying to explain how this promised child could be called mighty, perhaps we need a better definition. One that goes beyond the ridiculousness of superject Jesus, and instead defines the word mighty from God's perspective. What does God consider mighty? Our series actually helps answer this. Verse 6 begins with, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Here's your first blank if you're taking notes. In humility, Jesus would take on flesh and be born as a man. In submission, Jesus the Son would willingly be sent to accomplish his Father's will. Humility, submission, not words that scream mighty, mighty are they? Our promised mighty God, our hero God, would enter the world humbly and submissively and remain so for the duration of his stay even though he is God. John 12, 49 and 50, Jesus said, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Jesus had every right to say, listen up, you knuckleheads. I'm God and you need to obey my words right now. Instead, here's your next blank, Jesus modeled perfect submission and humility to his father as an example of true might. We're called to do likewise. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some um, versions say something to be grasped, something to be hold, held onto, like he wouldn't let it go. Rather, he emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This reminds me of the definition of meek. Men don't like that word because it sounds too much like weak. But it actually means strength under control. Strength that is humble and submissive to God. Meekness is acknowledging, yeah, I have the strength. I have the authority. 
and I could probably even force you to do it my way. But I submit to doing things God's way instead. That's meekness. Jesus warned his followers in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Here's your next note. Jesus never exalted himself, though by every conceivable right he should have. Instead, he left that up to his father, And because of Jesus' humble submission to the Father, as it says in Philippians 2, the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and they bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a human man, Jesus displayed strength that stands in radical contradiction to what the world defines as strong. But as the divine son of God, Jesus Jesus accomplished something mighty impossible, a triumph that accurately encapsulates the word wonderful, as Derek preached last week. We glimpse this also in Isaiah chapter 9, several verses before our text. Verse 2 says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep deep darkness, on them has light shone. I want you to think about the darkest place you've ever been. For me, it was in a cave in Missouri during a missions conference. A couple hundred high school uh, kids with adult leaders traveled deep into this cave network. Then one of the leaders uh, gave the gospel message and all the flashlights were turned off as part of an object lesson. Total, absolute blackness. I mean, not even that. That's not what this verse is referring to. This deep darkness is utterly hopeless and despondent spiritual enslavement to sin, death, and Satan. And there's simply nothing darker. This verse echoed loud in my heart several years ago as I traveled through India and witnessed the masses of people worshiping these lifeless idols. When I went to Thailand and I see people burning incense in front of the Buddha. And when I leave this parking lot and drive home. The people who walk in darkness desperately need to see a great light. And Isaiah caught a glimpse of this future light and what this light would accomplish. We are blessed to exist post-fulfillment of this promise. The Gospel of John contains my favorite Christmas passage. Most people turn to Luke for a description of Christmas, but I actually like what John writes more. Are we allowed to have favorites in the Bible? We'll see. In the Blue Bible, if you don't have one, it's on page 981. We're going to read a portion of John chapter 1. As I read this, I'm going to replace some of the pronouns just for emphasis. I'm not rewriting the Bible, so don't freak out. I'm just replacing some of the pronouns, okay? This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without him not anything was made that was made. In Jesus was life, and the light was the light of men. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John came as, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the best Christmas story I've ever heard because I can think of no greater gift. Here's your next note. Jesus, our mighty hero God, came to deep darkness and brought light. He brought redemption, freedom, healing, life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That hopeless spiritual enslavement became a hopeful spiritual freedom in Christ through what Jesus would accomplish on the cross on our behalf. And only mighty God could do this because this battle wasn't against flesh and blood. So it doesn't matter how jacked you are, you cannot win. It does not matter how much willpower you think you have how clever or smart you think you are, you are like a toddler fighting against a heavyweight MMA contender. You are nothing, no contest. You offer not even the slightest challenge against the fight for sin, death, and Satan on your own. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus described the spiritual battle, the spiritual victory, sorry, the spiritual victory he came to bring. He said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying Satan is the strong man and his goods are the people enslaved to him. But Jesus, the stronger man, the mighty God, came to bind Satan and rescue those under his sway, to destroy the power of sin, death, and Satan. Something no one else could possibly do. Now, now that's a pretty good definition of mighty. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called the humble, submissive, creator, all-powerful, light of the world, mighty hero God. Do you see Jesus this way? 
Perhaps you belong to God, but life's circumstances are pressing in all around you, and it sure seems like you're walking through deep darkness. Are you struggling to see Jesus as mightier than your situation? Or how about seeing him as everlasting father? This one might be a little confusing at first, since foundational to Christianity is belief in one God expressed as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So on the surface, calling this promised Son Father seems odd until we dig a little bit deeper. In John 14, 8, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I imagine an eye roll here, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So in a sense, God the Father and God the Son are one. But remember, these shall be called are attributes about this Messiah. So the phrase everlasting Father isn't necessarily an example of Trinitarian theology, but it certainly applies. So what does everlasting father mean? Well, everlasting simply means always. Has always been, will always be permanent, unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Here's your next note. God doesn't do things on a whim. He isn't erratic, moody, or inconsistent, which means who he is and what he's like is faithful to who he's always been and will always be. We can bank on God never changing. But let's be honest. None of that inspires much confidence and hope all by itself. That's why Father is so important in this context. Because Father conveys a very special, very particular meaning. This one might be hard to hear for those whose earthly fathers left deep and lasting wounds. Because Father means good. Everlasting Father means always good. Mark 10, 18, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, no one is good but one, that is, God. In Matthew 7, 9 through 11, Jesus said, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? The best human you know isn't good because goodness, to truly be good, also needs to be unchanging. We humans are erratic, moody, inconsistent. We have moments of weakness and even seasons of foolishness. We smile to your face and tear you to shreds in our desperately sick hearts. That's what we do. The idea that humans are inherently good is laughably ridiculous. But the Messiah, the promised child who is also the son, is always good. 
Again, this might be hard to swallow since we live in a fallen world where evil things happen all of the time. The atheist and the agnostic point to this evil as proof that God either doesn't exist or isn't really good. So perhaps we need a better definition of good, one that exceeds our idea of how outcomes should go. And for that, we're going to look at David's description of God's goodness in a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23. But let's see if we can, may, might be able to find something new today. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 23. In the Blue Bibles, it's page 506, about halfway through. We're going to go through this line by line and see if we can find something new for us to cling to in this definition of good. Psalm 23. Verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Okay, so right from the start, David describes God as an attentive caretaker who provides for those who belong to him. Okay? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside waters of rest. He restores my soul. Following God's leading will bring us true soul rest, will bring us joy and peace and contentment. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. God's way is always the right way to go. Remember that. Clue in on that. These three verses clearly indicate that God is leading and in control. So far, so good, right? Okay. I want to follow this God's leading. But then verse 4 happens. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Whoa. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought God was going to lead me to green pastures and waters of soul rest. Did God abandon me? No. He's right there beside you, still leading. That's right. He's intentionally leading you through the valley because it's the right path for his glory and your good. Not away from it, not around it, through it. Most versions call this the valley of the shadow of death. But you want to hear something really cool? This is actually the same phrase that Isaiah uses in chapter 9, verse 2. Even when I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God's promised presence is greater. Full stop. Greater than the pain, greater than the darkness, greater than even your very best day on earth. Here's where real faith will show up. Will you, while traveling through a season of deep darkness, hold on to God's hand as he leads you through it? Or will you let go and try to find comfort and solutions elsewhere? David continues, your rod and your staff, meaning God's instruments of direction and correction, like his word and wise counsel, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So where do you turn for comfort? Is it pleasure? Avoidance of pain? Commiserating with other miserable people? Or do, or do you go to God's word and God's people? Get this. God 
isn't phased by the deep darkness because God does not change. Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Picture God setting up a picnic in the middle of an ongoing battlefield. God's unfazed. His care and his provision do not stop just because things around us are falling apart. That rest and peace God promises in verses 1 and 2, they are still guaranteed when we are following his path. The path he sets before us because our mighty God cannot be intimidated or frightened. He can't be taken by surprise. David continues, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is the abundance Jesus speaks of in John 10.10, that we might have life, meaning God's presence and love and peace and joy and have it abundantly because we are committed to this journey God's way rather than focusing on the present circumstances and potential outcomes. David writes, only goodness and steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life. Not only is God leading, he's also behind you, sheltering you, watching your back, shepherding you from all sides because his ultimate plan is to bring you to his eternal presence. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our notion of good needs a God-sized perspective, which is impossible, but we certainly get these awesome glimpses in his word from time to time. Our perspective centers on our immediate circumstances, what is good for me right now. So we become blinded to God's provision, his rest, his presence, his promises, and his plan. And sometimes... God's plan includes walking through deep darkness. Will you trust him even then? Deuteronomy 31.8 says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do you believe that? Picture a helicopter parent. You all know what a helicopter parent is? For those of you who don't know, it's the parent who hovers over their children and never lets them experience any risk or harm. These are the kids that never get to play on the swing set because swings kill people. (laughs) They never get taught how to slice an apple because fingers will get chopped off. And they never experienced conflict resolution because their feelings are always affirmed as right and true. God wants his children to mature, to take risks for his name's sake and not be, well, snowflakes because his plan includes us becoming like his son, his mighty son, his humble and submissive son. And Jesus ain't no snowflake. Your physical safety is not guaranteed when you follow Jesus. But the safety of your soul is. There's this amazing conversation in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe between Mr. Beaver and Susan. Mr. Beaver is a talking beaver. And Susan is a human girl who, along with her siblings, travel to this magical land called Narnia through a wardrobe. The entire series is an allegory of the Christian faith, and it's highly worth reading. I I strongly suggest that you do that. Mr. Beaver suggests 
taking the humans to go meet Aslan. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I'd, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So how do you see Jesus? This amazing description in Isaiah 9-6 can be summed up like this. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is our wise, sovereign, and good king. We started with wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and his words, God's word, brings light and life for building the right foundation. Next was mighty God, our hero God. Jesus has all the power and the right to rule because of who he is and what he did to rescue us from the power of sin, death, and Satan. And he accomplished this through humility and submission to the Father's will. And Jesus is everlasting Father, our always good King who knows what's right and does what's right. All right, so why is this important? Imagine you live in a kingdom where the ruler is super wise, the wisest person in the world, but he's weak. Literally any other kingdom could come and wipe him out at any time. Or perhaps he uses his wisdom for evil to manipulate and control his subjects to do his bidding. Would you want to live in that kingdom? Okay, well, what if he was a really good king? kind and patient and generous, but he was still really weak and easily threatened. Or maybe he was just really dumb and made dumb choices about how to protect the kingdom. Or he's wicked and he uses his power to suppress his subjects. What if he's mighty? What if he was a mighty king, super vastly manful, but he was dumb? and he didn't make good choices about how to protect his people, or he was a tyrant who used his might and his power to rule and lord over his people and suppress them. You see, you take away just one of these descriptions, and this king isn't worthy of our worship, worthy of our trust, worthy of our adoration. If my king possesses all three of these qualities then I would follow him through deep darkness. And I would trust him with the outcome. This good, wise, and sovereign God king humbly came to earth as a man, submissive to the will of the Father for a purpose that we get to hear about next Sunday, and that was to become the Prince of Peace, what we get to celebrate every season. So I'm going to close by asking, what situations, problems, or struggles in your life, do you consider mighty? Too mighty for Jesus to help, to redeem, to save? If that's you, my hope this morning is that your view of Jesus radically expands. Are you walking in deep darkness right now? Does it feel like God has abandoned you to stumbling through this life all alone? 
Look to Jesus, our great light, our faithful and true Lord. Reach out your hand. He's still right there. And commit to doing things his way. Jesus is greater than your situation. Let's pray. Our Father, we so, we're so grateful for your word because it illuminates our hearts and our minds and it, and it expands our view of your Son. And he is so worthy of worship because of who he is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, I pray that your word would continue to go forth this morning and that our hearts would be penetrated and those who need to see a bigger view of Jesus would do so today that they would call upon his name for whatever struggles they see in their life today. Lord, we ask through your spirit that this be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we get to celebrate this morning. We get to celebrate this morning. We have two young lives that have said yes to Jesus, and they are going to be baptized this morning as the outward expression of an inward change of condition. So I'm going to hand it over to my pal, Dave.